our passage today is um, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 11, and that's page 1,225. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Well, good evening. Welcome. My name, as, uh, as, as Neil said, is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Particularly warm welcome if you are new. Um, if you are new, whatever age you are, um, just to say that if you wanted to get settled at City, uh, the little tagline that I want to say is that you get in what you put out. Uh, and so generally, the people who find that they uh, settle at City are those who stick around for tea and coffee, uh, join a small group, and get serving. And so, you know, we, uh, as people who've been around the city for a long, long time want to say hello uh, and, and welcome and to get you a bit more involved in, in city, but please do stick around and, that, and so we can get to know you and uh, just uh, get you part of the church. I'm going to pray for us. We're in our second in our uh, series in 1 John. We're looking at 1 John, the letter of 1 John, all the way up to just before Christmas. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to have a look at what uh, 1 John is going to say to us this, this evening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that as, um, uh, as we read it and as we uh, hear it properly explained, that you speak through it and you speak to our hearts. Please, Heavenly Father, would you um, give me uh, clarity to speak? Would you give us open ears to listen and to hear? For those who need to be comforted, please comfort them. And for those who need to be challenged, please would you challenge them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the city of Birmingham can be quite a confusing place if you're a Christian or you're looking into Christianity. And the reason I say that is because there are a variety of churches in the city who say they follow Jesus, but in some areas they, their message differs. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about those legitimate differences that Christians hold over issues such as uh, baptism or spiritual gifts or things like that. Rather, these differences centre on how Christians are to live. And so at City Church, we say that we love and follow the Lord Jesus, and we say that if you come here, uh, that you can know that you really know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's uh, one of our titles for, for the sermon series, How to Know You Really know God. Um, and and we, we choose to, uh, to preach uh, through books systematically from start to finish. And as we, as we preach, there is, we, we say that because of the Bible says that there are certain things that Christians should obey the Lord Jesus on if they are going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And so one example of that is things like sex or relationships. And I don't choose that area uh, randomly. I choose it specifically because it's an area of Christian discipleship that has been hotly debated in churches at the moment. But leave this building, uh, hopefully not yet, but leave this building and walk 20 minutes away. You reach a church who would also say they love and follow Jesus, but when they preach on uh, something like sex and relationships, they seem to stay quiet on the things that City just slightly speaks out about. And I wonder what you make of that. Is City just a, bit, a little bit hard line or, or, or what? Well, leave that building and walk another 20 minutes, you reach a third church who say they love and follow Jesus and say, well, if you come and join us and belong to our church, that you can know you really know God. But in contrast with church number two, this third church will disagree at certain points with City Church. And so City Church says that as we look at the Bible, God says that certain behaviours in sexual relationships uh, are sinful. But church number three will say, actually, those behaviours... They aren't sinful. In fact, they have God's blessing on them. And now you can see why being a Christian in, in, in Birmingham can be a little bit of a confusing place to be. The church landscape can be confusing. And it's bound to raise loads of questions, isn't it? Here's some questions they might raise. Uh, which church should I belong to? If there are three different flavors of churches, there might be more. But as I've said, if there are three different flavors of churches, which one do I belong to? Does it matter which church I belong to? Does it matter whether uh, it's church A, this church, or church B, or church C? Are all three types of churches spiritually positive? Are they going to help me know that I really know God? Are they spiritually positive? And if I choose to belong to one of them, how am I meant to think about the other two? How am I meant to think about the other two? It's all very confusing. And this confusion can be multiplied if you're looking into Christianity because you may have thought that churches are a bit like McDonald's. I wonder what you're going to say next. Churches are a little bit like McDonald's. They're all the same on the inside. There's just one flavor of church. Maybe me saying there are different kinds of churches or uh, uh, types of churches you might be surprised at. And if you're someone who genu- genuinely wants to find out about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, then what church should you go to? How do you know that as I preach or as city preachers, whether belonging to city church will be spiritually positive or negative for you? How do you know that? I'm going to tell you that, but how do you know that? Every you know, Church B and Church C will also tell you that. How do you know that this church is going to be spiritually positive? positive for you if you're looking into the Christian faith. It's all very confusing. 
And if you're confused, then you're in good company because the Apostle John wrote his letter of 1 John to a group of Christians who were either in one particular city or within a city, uh, a number of cities in a uh, a small geographical area. And those Christians he was writing to were confused. And they were confused because they lived in an area of the world where there were different types of churches saying different things about how to know you really know God. And so uh, all each of these di- different types of churches say that they loved and followed Jesus and would say that they could have a re- you know, give you a relationship with Jesus. But John reali- uh, knew that uh, not all churches were spiritually helpful, spiritually good for his readers. And these differences were so central, so core, that it moved John to write this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. Just flick over and have a look at that. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And so his readers were uh, surrounded by professing Christians and churches who were, if they went to them, if they left that church and went to that other church, they would be led astray in spiritual matters. And perhaps the shock of 1 John for us is that churches exist which can be Uh, not just damaging to the Christian life, but can be fatal to the Christian life. They do not lead people to heaven. Instead, they send them to hell. And that's a a surprise. That's a shock of 1 John. But that is what 1 John is all about. That's why uh, John the Apostle put pen to paper to write this letter to this group of churches to say not all churches are good churches you should go to. And you know, what is unique about the letter of 1 John is that the Apostle John mentions three uh, attitudes. Some of the people call them tests. We're going to call them attitudes. That a church or a Christian who really knows God will have. And here are the three attitudes. It's their attitude towards sin. It's their attitude towards truth. And it's their attitude towards other Christians. Those are the three attitudes, the three tests, if you like, about how you can know a church is good and is spiritually beneficial, will not lead you away uh, from uh, Jesus. And this evening, we're going to be looking at the first of those three attitudes, and then later on, we're looking at the other two, the attitude of towards sin. So first, the genuine church, the genuine believer, walks in the light. So back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, if you weren't here last week, uh, the Apostle John uh, told his readers that he physically met Jesus and heard the message Jesus taught, and then he shares this message with his readers. Do you see that, verse 5? This is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And so John is using picture language to describe what God is like, describe his character. So light in, in 1 John represents goodness and perfection and moral purity. And darkness, on the other hand, represents sin and evil. And that's something people pick up implicitly if they're into their movies. So I don't know whether you uh, know the, these characters from the 2014 Disney film Maleficence. It's probably good if you, you've never seen the film because if you look at the colour scheme, you don't need to tell me to tell you who is uh, the evil character and who is the good character, do you? Because the evil character dressed in dark colour scheme on the left, Joanna Jolie playing Maleficence. Uh, the evil fairy godmother. And on the right is Sleeping Beauty, Aurora. And the colour scheme gives it away. One's in the, in the dark and one's in the light. 
And that's the kind of thing that John is using in this imagery of darkness and light, that he uses it to picture evil and good, sin and purity, perfection. And so God is light. He is utterly pure and good. In him, there is no evil, no, none at all. No evil at all in God himself. And that's an interesting thing. But the reason John is telling us this is because if we are to live in relationship with God the Father, then his character matters. This character will shape how his followers uh, relate to him. So just imagine you have a dear friend, let's call her Sally for sake of arguments. As far as I know, there's no Sally's at City Church, but there could be, that's a nice. Uh, Sally has a serious nut allergy. It's not like that she doesn't like nuts. It, rather, if Sally eats a nut, it is life-threatening. And her throat will swell up and she cannot breathe. So you invite Sally over for dinner uh, on the weekend and you cook her a meal. Now, if you're in a relationship with Sally, if you love Sally... The last thing that you prepare would be a nut roast followed by pecan pie for dessert. That is the last thing that you will do, surely. Because if you do that and she eats it, it will kill her, um, unless she gets to hospital in time. Instead, because you know her character, and because you are in a relationship with her and you love her, you will work hard to make sure there's no hint of nuts in the food uh, you serve. Because you see, Sally's character will shape how you relate to Sally. And the same is true of God. God is light. That is who he is. There's no darkness in him. No, not any. And that will shape how we relate to him. And that's exactly the point that John makes in the next verse, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, in other words, if we claim to have a close relationship with God the Father, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And so John uses this picture language, this metaphor of walking in the darkness. Um, It's a picture uh, of someone who's living a consistent, habitual life of sin without acknowledging that they're doing what they're doing is wrong or is sinful and without repenting of sin. So they claim that they know God the Father, they, they love the Lord Jesus, but in their life there are things that God calls sin and they are saying, actually, no, it's not sin. I'm going to live in in that way because I think that's okay. I think God's okay with that. And the people trying to lead the readers of 1 John astray were claiming to be in relationship with God the Father, but their lifestyle told them a different story. They were living lives of consistent, habitual, unrepentant sin. And as a result, John says their claim to have a close relationship with God the Father is a lie. They're lying. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to others. You do not have a relationship with God the Father if you are walking in the darkness. So instead of walking in darkness, genuine Christians will walk in the light, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as God the Father is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And, you know, someone who has a genuine relationship with God the Father walks in the light and they they try to live lives of obedience to what uh, God the Father says. Uh, They've tried, but they they fail, but they keep their guess up. They go back to God the Father and they keep on going. And as I say these two things and as you read these two verses, I know that there will be genuine Christians here this evening with sensitive consciences because you'll be thinking of all the sins that you committed this week And you'll conclude that because of those sins, 
you must be walking in the darkness because someone who's walking in the light wouldn't have thought or said or done the things that you have done this week. They wouldn't have failed at that sin yet again. Or they wouldn't have committed that one big sin that's on your conscience. But can I reassure you, because people who genuinely walk in the light, they still sin. And let me show you that from uh, uh, verse 7. Have a look at how uh, verse 7 ends. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And that ending of that verse 7 wouldn't make sense if those in the light didn't continue to sin, would it? Um, uh, The blood of Jesus is John's way of talking about Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he willingly uh, owned the guilt of all our sins. And God the Father punished him for them instead of us. God's anger fell on Jesus and not on us. And that means God the Father can forgive us. And purify us for all the sin that we've done. And Jesus' blood acts like a sort of spiritual detergent and purifies us from the spiritual stains left on us by our sins. And don't miss that wonderful three-letter word, all. Jesus' blood purifies us from all sin. And there's no spiritual stain that Jesus cannot or will not remove by his blood, by his death on the cross. The verb purifies, uh, you have to take my word for it, but it's, uh, it's true, uh, is in the present tense. Um, in other words, it's, it means that a valid translation of the sentence could be, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus goes on purifying us from all sin. It continues to purify us from all sin. So as genuine Christians get up each day and walk in the light, trying not to sin but but failing, they will still pick up those spiritual stains on them each day. But instead of running away from the light, because they know that the light exposes those spiritual stains, they run towards the the God the Father who's light. And they realise and recognise their sin and they want to get clean. And so they will stay in the light so the blood of Jesus will go on purifying them from all sin, not just today, but tomorrow and the next day, until either you, um, you, you die and go to be with the Lord Jesus, or Jesus comes back again. So a genuine Christian walks in the light. They will try not to sin, but they will fail. Uh, but if you're looking into Christianity, then a genuine church will be a church that teaches that God the Father is light. And that has a... Uh, an impact on how people relate to him. And if you want to have a relationship with him, then there are things that God the Father, who is light, will say, actually, those deeds, those sorts of behaviours or thoughts or actions are actually darkness. And you need to repent of them and come into the light and be purified from all sin. That's what a genuine church says. A church that will actually help you know that you know God. But I wonder if there are people here this evening who are professing to be Christians, but you're not walking in the light and you know it. Instead, you're holding on to a lifestyle or a habit which the Bible calls sinful. At one time, you may call it sinful too, but over time, you've persuaded yourself that God the Father is okay with it. And you no longer confess it as sin, and you no longer try and repent of it. You just keep going day after day. It's fine. God's okay with it. I'm okay with it. 
And if that's you, the Apostle Paul is saying, actually, you're not walking in the light. Your claim to have a relationship with God the Father is, is a lie. You're walking in the darkness. And he warns you that if you die tonight, there'd be no confidence that God would welcome you to, into heaven. And the reason he does that is to turn you back to walking in the light, to realizing actually that God says some things are sinful, some things are evil, and you need to repent of them and be purified from, from them. And so there, there is hope. You need to turn and cry out to, your, to, to God the Father to ask for your forgiveness and to resensitize your conscience. So second, genuine churches or believers confess their sins, verses 8 to 9. You may be wondering, how, how is it possible that someone who claims to be a Christian can actually live a life of unconfessed habitual sin, i.e. they can walk in the darkness? How can that happen? Because it just seems like something that you wouldn't necessarily think would happen. Well, it's possible because people redefine what sin is. Take a look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, and then have a look at verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned. And what the Apostle John is doing, he's taking some of the slogans out of his opponent's mouths. These were the things that people in 1 John, uh, in the churches, which were bad for them spiritually, were saying. They're saying, we, we haven't got any sin. Uh, we have not sinned. Now, it's very unlikely that John's opponents were claiming to be sinless. Very unlikely. Rather, it seems that these people had moved the thoughts and words and actions from the sinful bucket, saying, actually, this is sinful, and put them in the non-sinful bucket. What they had done is they had redefined sin. They had taken what God had said was sin and put it into the bucket which says, actually, God's okay with it. And that prompts John to write verse 8, if we claim to be without sin... In other words, if we deny that we are, you know, commit sins, if we redefine sin, redefine what is right and wrong, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we do something that the Bible says is sin, um, but we redefine it and say it's not sin, then actually the only person we're kidding is ourselves. We're self-deceived. We may say we believe the truth of the Bible, but we don't. That's what John's saying. And so we're not to redefine sin. So if God says that any sex outside of marriage is sin, which he does, we're not to redefine sex outside of marriage as something that God is okay with. And perhaps you're looking into the Christian faith and you've heard before that the Bible says that we're all sinners and we're all guilty before God. But the problem is you don't actually feel like a sinner. You don't feel like the things that you've done wrong are particularly bad, if at all. You think that if there is a God at all, then actually you'd be fairly on good terms with him. And you don't feel particularly guilty either. And if that's you, then can I say, uh, perhaps your feelings aren't an accurate guide to the reality of the situation. I'm sure all of us had the experience of having a, a friendship, having a relationship with a friend. And you think everything's okay with that friend, but something you've said or done has really angered them, got their nose. And they are really angry with you, but you're a bit oblivious. You don't feel any guilt, but in fact, uh, let's, you, you are. And it take, all it takes is that person to express how they are feeling, to reveal to you that actually you are in the wrong, and that you are guilty, and that relationship has been broken because of things you've done. 
And if that can happen in human relationships, how much more can it happen between human beings and God's? You could say that the Bible is God's uh, sitting you down and saying to you, actually, we're not okay. You might not feel it, but I'm deeply offended by the way you've lived in my world and not honoured me. I've given you friends and family and fun and all those different things, and yet you've not honoured me, and I'm offended by that. And maybe you just need to have a think about that, that we, we run a course on a Monday night called Christianity Explored. We're going to have a, a, an advert about this that later on. If you're uh, interested in thinking about that more, please do come along to Christianity Explored. So back to verse 9. Instead of redefining sin, John says something that we should do. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, God the Father is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so instead of redefining sin, instead of saying, uh, that's not sin, that's fine, God's okay with that. Instead of redefining sin, we're to confess our sins. And you know what? The whole of verse 9 is designed to reassure the struggling Christian that their guilt of their sin is forgiven and the spiritual dirt of their sin is washed clean. And so we're just going to walk through it and let's just see how John just ladles reassurance all over this verse. So have a look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, God the Father is faithful. He is faithful and will forgive us our sins. John says that God the Father is faithful and he always does what he promises. And he promises that he will forgive all those who repent and he will deliver on that promise to forgive all those who ask. There is no sin that you can confess that God the Father is unwilling or unable to forgive. Isn't that good news? And when you ask, he will always forgive. No one's ever going to turn up to heaven and say, I confess my sins and God said I didn't forgive them. Because he's faithful. He can be trusted. Have a look again at verse 9. If we confess our sins, God the Father is just. And will forgive us our sins. Well, it's a bit less easy to understand how Christians can be confident of receiving God's uh, forgiveness because he's just. So let me try and explain it this way. Just imagine one of my friends went into the news agent, said to the person behind the counter, about an hour, uh, Jonathan's going to come onto the shop and buy a chocolate bar. I'm going to give you one pound so that when he picks out one of those chocolate bars, he will not need to pay for it. And so the news agent thinks, chocolate bar for a pound, brilliant, yeah, good deal, I'm making a profit, you're on, I'll do that. So half, uh, half an hour to an hour later, I come in, I look through the chocolate bars, I look at the bounty and think, actually, bounty's not really a chocolate bar, it's uh, a coconut dangled in the very direction of chocolate, so I discard that one. Instead, what I do is I pick up a Mars bar, and then I approach the news agents, and I open my wallet, and I take out a pound, and I go to pay for the chocolates. At that point... What is the right thing for the news agents to do? What is the just thing for the news agents to do? Well, the right thing and the just thing is for the news agents to say, it's paid for. It's paid for. And it's almost as if the Lord Jesus said to his heavenly father, in about 2,000 years' time, a man called Jonathan Gregory is going to be born and live and die. I know all the sins he's going to commit through his entire life. As I die on this cross, I want my sacrifice to pay for all of his sins. And so when I come to my Heavenly Father and ask for forgiveness, 
He can say to me with great joy, it's paid for, of course I'll forgive you. They're paid for by the all-sufficient sacrifice of my son on the cross. And let me put it even more strongly. Here it has been put even more strongly. It would be wrong for my heavenly father to refuse to forgive even one of my sins because Jesus has already paid for them. It'd be like the news agents taking the money from me, uh, from my friend, and then charging me for the Mars bar. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? It'd be unjust. And so God the Father will forgive because of the, uh, the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. He will not demand sin be paid for twice. And if Jesus paid for our sin, then we will be forgiven. That's great news, isn't it? Isn't our Heavenly Father wonderful? Isn't the gospel marvellous? Isn't the Lord Jesus spectacular? Let's keep going. Verse 9. He, God the Father, is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, all unrighteousness. And there's that little three-word letter again. Uh, Sorry, three-letter word again. John said it again. And when a Bible author repeats a word, what he's trying to do is make a point. And John's point is one of assurance. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. All sin. All means all. And maybe you're a Christian here this evening, but there's a particular sin on your heart. And maybe that's because you think it's too big to be forgiven, or maybe you think it's because you've committed it too many times to be forgiven. Perhaps you've cheated on your spouse. Perhaps you're addicted to online pornography. Perhaps you've destroyed a relationship with uh, some really ill-chosen words. I don't know what it is. And the wonderful news is I don't need to know. Because I know that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us your, our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so that is meant to be an encouragement for Christians who are struggling with sin at the moment. The Lord Jesus will purify you from all unrighteousness. Third, uh, genuine churches, genuine believers don't want to sin. Verses at uh, uh, the end of chapter 1 into 2 2. And John has given us just a wonderful reassurance that the blood of Jesus goes on purifying from all sin, but he doesn't want this, his readers to think that that gives them a blank check to sin as much as they want to. So have a look at verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's his desire. It's not meant to say, here's a blank check, go and sin freely. It's not that. And and so he doesn't want his readers to misunderstand him. And yet he also is very realistic. He knows that his readers will sin. And so he he knows that they need reassurance from forgiveness. Uh, Verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And he describes Jesus as our advocate before the Father. The word advocate is taken from the law courts. It's someone who acts as a defense lawyer for the accused. So when I confess my sin to my Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus turns to his Heavenly Father uh, in heaven and, and shows him the holes in his wrist and the holes in his side and says, Father, I died on the cross for that sin that Jonathan has just confessed. I took the punishments that Jonathan deserved. Forgive him because my blood 
was shed for him. And with a great smile on his face, God the Father says, of course, my dearly loved son, Jonathan is forgiven of that sin because uh, you are righteous. And he he is as righteous as you are. He is as welcome as in heaven as you are. Isn't that an amazing thought? And that's only possible because Jesus is the righteous one. He can act as a defense lawyer because he has no sin of his own to make him guilty. And not only that, he can share his righteousness, his good life, with us so that we are welcome in heaven as he is. Verse 2 describes Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is a, the NIV's attempt to, uh, to get across the meaning of the word propitiation. Now, that might not be a word in your uh, dictionary, mental dictionary. Here's what propitiation means. Uh, to make a sacrifice in order to satisfy someone's anger against you. So just imagine a newly married man forgets to buy a, a, a card and a present for his wife to celebrate their first anniversary, and his, understand, uh, his wife is understandably angry at her new husband. He'll forget once, but he won't forget again. Um, so the next day, the husband goes out and buys the biggest bouquet of flowers he can, and he arrives home with the flowers, and the sight of the bouquet uh, satisfies the ang- uh, her anger with her husband. You could say that the husband has propitiated the wife with his flowers. He has sacrificed his money in order to, to turn away her anger, to satisfy her anger. And God the Father is righteously angry with the sin of human beings, because their sin is not so much like um, driving 40 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. It is actually a personal offence to him. It's personal with God. And one day he has said that he will pour out that righteous anger on them, on people who continue to rebel against him. But God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live on earth. And Jesus took on himself all of our sin and suffered the weight of God's anger against sin. So Jesus' self-sacrifice propitiates God's anger towards us. It was heading towards us. And then Jesus' death on the cross diverted the anger. It fell on Jesus. And for anyone who trusts in Jesus, God's anger against them is propitiated, is turned away, is satisfied. And once again, John wants to reassure his readers that no one is excluded from the propitiation, I can't even say it, propitiation, atoning sacrifice, Jesus brings about, verse 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Well, what does the end of verse 2 actually mean? Well, John cannot mean that Jesus' death automatically pays for the sins of every person, whether they believe in Jesus or not. It can't mean that. You've just got to read the the rest of the letter of 1 John, and you'll see that people in 1 John will go to hell unless they repent. Instead, the Apostle John is saying that no one needs to feel out of reach of the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus. Here's how one Christian commentator explains 2 verse 2. Uh, Jesus' death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world, but his sacrifice does not become effective until people believe in him. And you know, some Christians can get into an awful mess about sin because despite the God the Father's attempts to reassure us that he will forgive us uh, and will forgive our sins, some Christians can still think, but I'm excluded. Yeah, but there's an exception. You say purify for all sin, yeah, but I'm the, I'm the exception. And if that is you, then God the Father is trying to tell, do all he can to say, Jesus' death takes away your sin. 
And the way he does that is by saying that he is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. So let me put it this way. Uh, No one in this room is excluded because we're all human beings. We're part of the world. If you you can't answer in the the affirmative uh, that you're part of the world, if you can't say, I am part of the world, I'm sure uh, then actually people from NASA would be really happy to meet you. Uh, But all of us are part of the world in this room. And that means that all of us can come under the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus. No one in this room is excluded. You are included. And in all seriousness, all of us fit into that box labelled the world. And Jesus' death is sufficient for everyone inside that box. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, then all of God's anger against your sin has been satisfied as Jesus died on the cross. And no matter what you've said or thought and done, it has been fully and finally and completely forgiven by the death of the Lord Jesus. And so he's saying that even if you're thinking, yeah, but I'm sure verse 9, that he purifies me from all sin, doesn't, uh, doesn't apply to me. Well, he's the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Yes, it does apply to you. No one is excluded. And along with every other Christian, you can sing this verse from the John Wesley hymn. Uh, He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. His blood availed for you. His blood availed for you. His blood availed for you. So how do you know if a church will help you really know God? How do you choose between those three different kinds of churches I mentioned at the beginning. Well, John's answer in these verses is that you look at the attitude towards sin. A genuine church that really knows God will have a certain attitude towards sin. They will walk in the light. In other words, they will try to obey the Lord Jesus. They'll fail, but they'll try. And when they fail, they'll stay in the light and get cleansed and purified from all sin. A genuine church will confess their sins They won't redefine sin. If God calls a behavior sin, they won't say, well, actually, it's not sin. Instead, they will confess their sins, confidence that they'll be forgiven. And a genuine church won't want to sin. They won't treat Jesus' forgiveness as a blank check just to rack up huge spiritual debts of sin. And instead, they'll try not to sin, but they'll rely on the sin-bearing death of Jesus that propitiates God's anger. And they know they can be forgiven because his his death was for the sins of the the whole world. We're included. No one is excluded. And it's appropriate this evening that we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And before we do that, I think it's appropriate also uh, that we confess our sins as a church. We don't do that often. Uh, Here's a prayer that we're going to um, pray together uh, that uh, that I've I've found useful in the past. Uh, So uh, close your eyes. I'll pray this. But echo this uh, in your heart together with me. So as we confess our sins and come to a time when we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow men in thought and word and deed, in the evil we have done and in the good we have uh, not done, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate faults. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you 
in newness of life, to the glory of your name. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer, if you're trusting in Jesus, listen to what God says to you now. If we confess our sins, God the Father is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness.